Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Macro Compass. First of all, we are now over 100,000 people. Thank you very much. I don't know what else to say. Now, back to the article, I want to start with a quote of Mark Twain, which once said that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. I decided to look back at historical parallels to try and assess the prevailing macro conditions that we have today, which is, sometimes can be a pretty useful exercise. Last time I did that was in December 2021, where I realized that 2022 could actually be 2018 on steroids and deliver pretty much negative returns across asset classes. The past is the past, though, so what about today is the question that this article will try to answer. So I refreshed my macro framework. I dug all the way back into 50 years plus of history, and the evidence is pretty compelling. I think the next six months will pretty much resemble the last quarter of 2000 and the beginning of 2001. Now, leading to that period, we experienced excessive animal spirits and risk-taking activities. Think about dot-com bubble. In early 2001, financial conditions had become pretty tight, and we started experiencing a marked slowdown in earnings, weakness in the labor market, but at the same time, inflation was stubbornly above 2%, and hence the Fed's ability to accommodate was quite limited. If it sounds all familiar, it's because it is, and there is much more uh, when it comes to parallels. So in this article, we will update all the Macro Compass framework. We'll look at the latest development in forward-looking macro indicators and in the gorgeous of monetary policy stunts that I use. We will discuss further the parallels between early 2001 and today, look at the performance of several asset classes back then, and try to learn some lessons about how to position our portfolios today. So before we do that, let's redefine for a second what the Macro Compass Quadrant framework is. It revolves around forward-looking macro indicators and measures of the relative monetary policy stance. By looking at those two axes on a quadrant, we can assess where do we sit in the economic cycle and what the most appropriate asset allocation could be. So the analysis on the surface remains uh, pointing to the fact that we are in quadrant four. Quadrant four is the most defensive of all quadrants where basically dollar cash and protection from risk assets are the only way to uh, keep our head above the water, but quite a lot of things are brewing under the surface too. So let's refresh some of my main indicators to go through these changes. Let's start from the x-axis of the quadrant, which looks at forward-looking macro indicators. Those are pointing down. But what I want to discuss is that the x-axis of the quadrant model informs us on the rate of change in economic growth. So it's not about whether we are in a recession or whether we have super strong growth, but it's about whether the economic activity is accelerating or decelerating. Now to discuss uh, and to try and predict whether that's the case, I use statistically significant forward-looking macro indicators. One, two of those actually have been put in this article. The first one is the year-on-year -year change in the ratio between new orders and inventories in the ISM survey in the US. If you actually plot this one against year-on-year -year changes in the earnings growth of the S&P 500, lagged by three to four quarters, you actually have a pretty decent indicators with a lead time of three to four quarters for where earnings are going. Earnings growth actually is going. So this is pretty um, intuitive from my perspective because if companies are reporting a sluggish pace of new orders, but at the same time, they're building up inventories, you can expect a few quarters later that earnings actually are going to disappoint. Right now, this metric will be pointing towards earnings disappointing expectations and actually shrinking by 10 to 15% next year. Now, consensus expectation sits with earnings in the S&P 500 at plus 8% in a year from now. 
And remember this, this number, because the other uh, most famous, I think, forward-looking indicator I use is my flagship global credit impulse metric. Now, the global credit impulse metric is an indicator that measures the rate of change, once again, of the money creation for the real economy. So that's us, guys. It's households and corporates. It's basically the bank deposits sitting on the non-financial private sector. So think about it. The faster your bank deposits grow, and bank deposits are basically the money we use nowadays in the real economy, the more likely you are to increase your spending and boost economic activity. So the, the G5 credit impulse measures exactly the rate of change of these spendable real economy money across the largest five economies in the world. And at, with the latest available data in July 2022, the G5 credit impulse printed at 20-year lows. And that's a combination of the fact that there has been a gigantic fiscal drag after the fiscal impulse in 2021. There's been a big fiscal drag across the world in 2022. The Chinese economy is deleveraging big times and global bank lending has been insufficient to pick up the slack. Now, when I look at such a negative print um, to the tune of negative 5% of GDP in the credit impulse, it's the worst in over 20 years. Normally, such a bad print would predict earnings to shrink again by 10 to 20%. And remember, analyst consensus is for earnings to grow by 8% over the next year. So like in late 2000, early 2001, economic growth and earnings should be on the verge of a serious slowdown. That's the first check as a comparison. Now, when we refresh the second axis of the macro compass, we're looking at the relative monetary policy stance. That remains very tight, and I want to stress very tight. So one of the mistakes that many investors do, in my opinion, is that they judge the Fed to be tied or loose based on the absolute level of Fed funds. But actually, my framework suggests that it's the pace of change in policy, and most importantly, the stance relative to equilibrium that are more important to determine economic growth and the performance of asset classes. So one thing to say is that today's equilibrium rates are much lower than 20 or 30 years ago. So a 5% risk-free rate today is much tighter than it was in the 90s. So we have to look at it in a relative uh, fashion. And so the pace of change on monetary policy is very clear. It has become extremely tight all of a sudden from October 21 to the first half of 2022. We all know that it's been truly impressive. But what most investors haven't still realized is how tight and for how long central banks will be against estimates of neutral rates. So if you look at where five-year real yields are trading in the US, they're trading at roughly 150 basis points above neutral. And if I plot the time series of where real yields are against my estimate of neutral across time, 150 basis point plus is by far the tightest stance that the Fed has ever, ever had over the last 20 plus years. Now, I also put a table in the article that shows some observations about what happens when this very tight stance uh, basically stays there over time. And the first is that every time the Fed kept real rates 50 basis points or more above equilibrium for longer than a few months, something broke in 2000, in 2007, in 2018, and you can argue in 2022. Now, the other thing is that after such a restrictive policy is enforced, 12 months forward returns in the S&P 500 are very negative. The average is minus 18%. And high yield credit spreads are much wider. The average is over 300 basis point widening. Now, in 2022, so far, we have been very tight for 113 days already. 
And most importantly, the level of tradable real yields, as I said, is much higher than equilibrium, over 150 basis points. So that doesn't really bode well for risk assets and financial market stability out there. But the reason why the Fed stance is so tight is credibility. So because Powell is basically so far away, has been so wrong in his stance, in Jackson Hole, he told us unambiguously that the Fed will be as tight as needed until the job is done. Now, Powell also can't let markets challenge his credibility further. So I decided to build something that I call the Powell Credibility Indicator, and it measures the market-implied real Fed funds rate in one year from now. So the idea is that Powell needs to remain tight for at least another year. Tight means way above neutral, which I estimate being roughly in the 0.025% area in the U.S., which means that real Fed funds rate should be roughly in the 1% positive area, which he also indicated at the last press conference, but the market must believe him. So one year forward, market implied real Fed funds today trade roughly at 1.20%. So Powell is achieving his credibility from a market perspective so far, but in order not to lose that credibility, this means that the Fed has to remain tight for longer. In late 2000, early 2001, there was a very similar situation Fed funds were at 6.5%, which in my estimate, again, it's a relative gain, 50 basis point above neutral rate. So it was tight for quite a long period of time because inflation was in the 4% area for many quarters and the Fed was hesitant to cut rates when the economy was rolling over. If it sounds very familiar, it's because it is very much similar to, uh, to that period. Now, there are more similarities. Once we refreshed our macro framework like we did, uh, let's talk about a bit more about the similarities between today and the end of 2000, beginning of 2001, and look at how asset classes performed back then. So refreshing again, the macro compass calls for a period of slowing real growth, possibly picking inflationary pressures, but still a very tight monetary policy stands ahead. But when you look at historical parallels, you need to control for more variables. So you need to think of a period where inflation was running above central bank targets for long, like it is today, when the labor market was showing some preliminary signs of weakness, like today, and especially where animal spirits had generated a lot of excess risk taking in certain corners of the markets. Well, one can argue like in 2021. So when you look at the Q4 2000, Q1 2001 period, I think you have a very compelling historical parallel. And that's because the dot-com bubble had generated excess risk taking in markets like 2001, we saw massive risk taking in unprofitable companies, for example. CPI had, had increased from 2% to almost 4% very quickly, and it had remained there for many months to come. And as a result, the Fed hiked by 200 basis points in a few quarters, back-to-back -back meetings, and it sent the Fed funds above neutral, exactly like today, and it forced to keep them there for at least one year. And also the hard to cut rate was very high. If it sounds like a deja vu, it's because it is. And the last point is that forward-looking macro indicators were already showing signs of stress in 2000. By the end of the year, therefore, the labor market was weakening and uh, earning per share growth was flatlining a bit like today. Now, how did asset classes perform in the, in the six months following this period? So basically from August to September 2000, all the way to March 2001. So in this period, earning per share actually dropped by almost 7%. Average monthly non-farm payrolls slowed down to only 75,000 jobs a month. And the Fed didn't cut rates for the first four to six months and then started cutting rates only slowly but surely uh, by the end of this period, only to revert back maybe to neutral. So 
if you ask me, this sounds like a very uh, plausible macro scenario for the next six to nine months. And the key takeaways when you look at asset classes returns in this period was that equities kept selling off, but bonds did well. So if you look under the surface a bit more, the other interesting observations are also that bond proxy and defensive equity sectors, utilities, consumer staples, even healthcare, actually delivered positive returns. And even as the Fed started cutting rates, the dollar didn't immediately depreciate. Now, the main message I want to come across with is that contrary to popular belief, the initial weakness in the labor market and in earnings is not bullish risk assets because risk sentiment deteriorates, growth gets repriced down, and at the early innings, central banks can barely, maybe, move back to neutral, if anything, that doesn't help risk assets. They actually continue to suffer. And in my opinion, the best expression of such a macro environment, which will be coming over the next six to nine months, is a relative trade. You overweight bonds in your portfolio, patiently, slowly but surely, and you keep underweighting, especially cyclical equities. Put up a chart in the article that shows how bonds should overperform stocks by at least 10% over the next quarters. And remember, it's a relative gain. Bonds should overperform stocks, not necessarily deliver an absolute return, although I expect bonds to deliver a positive absolute return over the next few quarters. Now, my long-term ETF portfolio therefore has quite a lot of dollar cash still, very largely underweight in equities, especially cyclicals, and patiently accumulating 10-year-plus uh, bonds. So far, I've only purchased them in June uh, 23rd, and I'm waiting for uh, another entry level. I will let you guys know when, uh, when I do that. My tactical portfolio, um, my trailing profit target on the short euro dollar has been hit. So I booked profits, took profits. I was short euro and long the dollar against it. The last trade in the last article, the December uh, sterling downside option against the Swiss franc is out of the money for now. Expiry um, is in December. It's a long shot. It's a very complex trade. Let's see how it goes. I also remain short equities still via Russell 2000 future shorts. Now, to sum it all up, guys, um, if I refresh my macro framework, I see eerie similarities to the early 2001 period. So late 2000, early 2001, we saw major cracks appearing in the labor market and earning growth was slowing down and hence equities sold off further. Now, the good news at least is that a long haul investor could at least find some shelter in bonds and bond proxies. Now, thanks guys, this was all for today. Thanks for listening. We'll update next week again for every uh, kind of inquiry, sponsorship, partnership, media appearances, conferences, whatever. You can always reach out at themacrocompass at gmail.com. Thanks again for being more than 100,000 investors and macro enthusiasts listening to these articles and reading them. Please click the like button on the article. Share this article around with friends so we can spread the word and build a larger community further here on the Macro Compass. Thank you very much and talk next week.